0: Hello, I'm Daniel Yates, Executive Director at JP Morgan, and welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK in Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professionals, focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode for Pride Month, I'm talking all things diversity, equity, and inclusion with Julia Hoggart, CEO of the London Stock Exchange. Julia is openly gay and a champion for diversity and inclusion. She's been named in Financial News' 100 Most Influential Woman four times and appeared in Outstanding's list of top executives twice. Her career has seen her work for the investment banks J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, in addition to working for the regulator the FCA. So, Julia, thank you for joining me today. To begin, can you tell me about your role at the LSE and the LSE's role in the capital markets? Not a small
1: question. Uh, <sighs> no, so, my role is, is Chief Executive. The London Stock Exchange. So, broadly speaking, my job is to make sure that we open on time, close on time, and do everything we need to do in between, Uh, that we uh, provide the best possible service for our clients, but also that we think about how we drive and grow the capital markets in the UK, which is fundamentally the role of the London Stock Exchange, I think. Um, For me, the capital markets are not about basis points and big capital ratios. I've actually been quite outspoken about saying they're not about enabling bankers to drive Lamborghinis in recent weeks as well. But fundamentally, it's about how we drive capital into the real economy. Um, And everybody in this country should care that our capital markets are successful because it's what creates new products, it's what creates jobs, it's what creates growth, and ultimately, it's what creates the assets that enable our pensions to have a rich old age. And so fundamentally, a lot of my job, I think, is about how we change the narrative and the conversation about the role of capital markets in the UK and how we make them be the best possible thing they can to serve not only the UK's economy, but the UK's place as a
0: global financial centre. Great, thank you so much. And Julia, you've been an advocate for LGBT plus issues for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. What does Pride Month mean to you?
1: It's really interesting. One of the weird things about having been open again in the city for as long as I have, so I came out in the late 90s, is, if I'm absolutely honest, I sometimes have to be reminded when Pride Month is. And the reason for that is... For me, every day should be a moment of openness and celebration. And not necessarily just for LGBT people, but, but for anybody who has not traditionally felt that they've been recognised or given an equal opportunity to thrive. The reality is, though, that we still need Pride Months and we still need moments when we can both celebrate everything that the community has uh, achieved to date with all of our allies, but also recognise that there's a lot more to be done. Um, And whilst it may be straightforward for me to walk into the London Stock Exchange and talk about my partner, it is not straightforward for young gay kids coming up to school who've been bullied, or who come from backgrounds where their parents um, don't support them, or, and we have to also remember this, people from countries all over the world where it is still illegal to be gay. And therefore, um, to me, Pride Month is about recognising not only how far we've come, but how much work is, is yet to be done. And I think one of the greatest responsibilities of people with privilege, and I have privilege, I am sitting in an incredibly um, potentially impactful role in the city, and I have the privilege of being white, very solidly middle class, etc. cetera, um, is actually to make sure that I don't put the drawbridge up, home, but that I do everything I can to make it easier for the next generation of people coming through. Um, and I think we need to make sure that pride isn't about Banking what we've got for those who've already benefited, but recognising that there's a lot of work still
0: to be done. Great, and I think we're all looking forward to being able to celebrate Pride Month uh, more in person this year yes, after the last absolutely. two years. Yes. Yeah, uh, Julia, you're the first openly gay CEO of the London Stock Exchange in its 300-year history. Can you tell me about your coming out journey in both your personal and professional life?
1: Yep. Um, so I think I think my professional one is, is possibly quite well documented now, but it is it is. To me, a story—almost, even though it's my story—it's one I've learned almost the most from as a leader, actually. Um, so I joined JP Morgan in the mid-late nineties. It was still, at the time, not illegal to sack people on the grounds of sexuality in the UK, and I thoroughly presumed that I would go back into the closet, having been open at university, and have to spend the rest of my life covering. Um, in fact, the way I say it in the speeches is that on the second day at JP Morgan at 16 Victorian Bank, I'm just down there, um, I remember swiping my ID card through the barrier and presuming that I had left the real me on the outside and I picked her up on the way home. I also learned quite rapidly as an analyst in an investment bank that you spend far more time at the office than you do at home. Um, and a lot of your colleagues share and live their lives in the office. Um, And if you're not being open with them, there's actually an iniquity of trust. And I had an increasing number of colleagues who were confiding in me things where the equivalent information about me was my sexuality and my personal life. And I felt increasingly uncomfortable, actually, just in terms of my interpersonal relationships, that I wasn't open. Um, That didn't necessarily give me the confidence to do anything about it but a couple of years into my career I had spinal surgery and my MD came to visit me in hospital um, and um, my partner had been there throughout and um, was there and I introduced my MD to my partner. About three days later when the morphine wore off I suddenly realized I'd outed myself at the office um, and that same MD at the end of the year um, gave me my end of year review and said we're going to promote you a year early because it was very much the three years as an analyst and this was after year two. Um, but if we do promote you um, we're going to evaluate you next year not just on what you do for the team but what you do for the wider organisation and then she just took a beat and said have you thought about joining the LGBT society so this was my own MD telling me they were going to promote me acknowledging that I was gay and inviting me to get more engaged in the networks in the organisation now it was one minute of her time and it changed my life I don't think I'd be sitting here If she hadn't done that, because the amount of emotional energy and effort it takes to cover is so great that that is energy I would not have been able to direct to my job and to my career. Um, And so really, my experience is in those small acts of management and the individual choices that leaders and managers make in their interaction with their staff. And it took somebody having taken the time to come visit me, caring about how I was, and then recognising that she needed to make that step. To give me the comfort to thrive, um, and so for me, I feel like I have to pay that both back and forward in every day, um, and it's a sort of role model I live by or try to live by in terms of that responsibility as a people manager to help people thrive.
0: Yeah, what an incredible manager, MD that you had yep. uh, at the time. Yeah. And so, as you alluded to, you started your career at JP Morgan in yep. the late nineties. Um, How have attitudes towards the gay community changed during your professional career?
1: They've changed a lot. I mean, uh, my perspective is a slightly unusual one in that I've been in the rooms of senior leaders in the city having conversations about diversity and inclusion for the last 20 years. So my perspective, I'm probably better informed about what CEOs think than I am necessarily what VPs and MDs think, as it were. Um, And that may not be as accurate uh, an image as... um, as I need to have. I have to be conscious of that. But when I started getting involved in LGBT stuff um, at JP, we organised the first ever, we think, dedicated uh, recruiting events in the city for LGBT students. And the logic was, we think that there are really talented people who are gay, who are self-deselecting from this industry because they think that it's straight white male. Um, and as a consequence of that, why don't we overtly go out and talk to the LGBT networks and all the universities that we recruit from and produce an event that actually debunks some of these myths, if there's even more talented people that we could um, attract. I think we had a, I can't now remember, we had about hundred I can't remember whether it was hundred or two hundred students who turned up. I do remember the atmosphere. You could have taken the roof off the Great Hall in the Victorian Bateman with the energy because of all these students, being courted by this Wall Street firm, who never thought for one second those sorts of firms would be attracted to employing them. Um, nowadays, the city does this all the time. It's absolutely great, but this got media coverage. It it was sort of in the newspapers, and it led to a certain amount of needing to steal one's confidence to keep doing it because of the responses that it got, um, and. When I first started having conversations with other leads across the city, the most infamous comment I heard was, "We've invited you to come and talk to us, despite our CEO, not because of our CEO." Um, and that was in the non- early noughties in terms of the attitudes. This DNI stuff, is sort of frippery. it's CSR, it's side of the desk stuff. Don't really need to focus on that. Um, by the time I was a regulator and talking to all the major CEOs and investment and banks they had completely transformed. I I didn't meet a CEO who wasn't passionate about diversity and inclusion, couldn't talk to it, and didn't care enormously about it. The challenge became the realisation that talking about it wasn't enough, that actually a lot of the issues around diversity and inclusion across the piece, whether it's LGBT or whether it's gender whether it's race, whether it's disability, actually are products of the societies we all operate in. And therefore, we actually have to do things differently to produce different outcomes rather than just say that it matters. Um, And I say repeatedly that diversity and inclusion um, agendas should not be about rainbow lanyards and recruitment posters and things that make us feel good about ourselves. It should actually be about frank conversations about what we haven't fixed yet and what we're going to change in order to fix it. So, in the last five years, I've seen far more of that latter bit of the conversation come out. Really tangible things of what do we need to re engineer in our processes so that we don't keep producing the same results time and time again. So there has been a remarkable change, an absolutely remarkable change. And I think in some organizations, particularly where you've got openly gay senior leaders, um, you will sometimes find that the LGBT community or portions of it, and say the L and G, not necessarily the B and the T and the plus, actually are some of the happiest in organizations. Because the organisation is comfortable with, with gay, openly gay people. Um, those people have often done well in their organisations and senior people tend to do well. So when I was at the FCA, we used to look at the surveys of staff um, by diversity and inclusion and we used to test the what was the difference between the perceived experience of people in the organisation and the lived experience. So the question was, how do other members of staff think gay people experience the FCA? And then you ask the gay people how they experience it. Now, actually, kind of mathematically, openly gay senior women were statistically the happiest people in the organisation and actually happier than their colleagues thought they were. So, but um, you you find situations where um, uh, people with disabilities or people from ethnic minorities were less happy than they were perceived to be. And so, to me, it's also about making sure that we don't just think about this as LGBT, but we actually think about what are all the lessons that we've learned that we can contribute to ensuring that everybody feels as happy as they're perceived to be.
0: Thank you so much. And the the event that you spoke about there at Victoria Embankment Mm -hmm. is a magnificent, uh, Ruth must have been a uh, a great uh, event at the time. A little bit closer to home now, and as CEO, how do you foster a culture of diversity, equity and inclusion here at the Alicee?
1: Well, I think it it relates back to quite a lot of the things I would say. Turn from the top matters. So very clear public commitment from the leaders of the organisation that diversity and inclusion matters, matters, as it were. Um, And you'll see that from across the organisation and across the leadership. Um, And I very much wanted to come to an organisation that I felt shared my values in that regard. So I don't think any of us as senior leaders feel any compunction to do anything other than um, be very outspoken about what we care about and what we want to do. And we have a great platform to do that. And we had a market closed for Lesbian Visibility Week uh, the other week. Um, we've had events for Trans in the City. Um, we, we make sure that we actually kind of stand up for the things that we believe in um, across the diversity spectrum. So so there's that leadership of, of intent, but then there's the process pieces. How do you look through the way you evaluate talent? How do you look through the specific journeys that individuals take through the organisation? How do you coach your own leaders to have those inclusive conversations and to understand the lived experience of the people who work for? How do you teach people actually their... Leading an inclusive organisation is not actually about treating everybody the same. It's about giving everybody an equal opportunity to thrive. And what enables them to thrive may not be the same person by person. Um, and it's, it's actually about really therefore focusing on those days where people leaders spend time with their staff. They really understand them. They can have those conversations. It's about creating the tools. It's about creating the the evaluation techniques and mentorship techniques that enable you to do that. But it's also about very deliberately thinking about your recruitment and your hiring, and saying, "Have we got the right people in the right place?" Now, I am naturally one of those people who wants to be surrounded by people who will challenge me and think differently. But if you put the same people with the same backgrounds in the room, the risk is we all vehemently agree with one another and do the wrong thing. Um, And so actually, for me, that diversity of thought, experience, background and context is critical to making good decisions. Um, And I think the more you role model having that level of diversity in the room and how you can bring that cohesion together, the more people feel that they've got a voice in the organisation.
0: Great. Thank you very much for that. I wondered if I can ask you about your early career Mm -hmm. and what role models or mentors you had at the time.
1: Well, I was very lucky when well, I started my career in that the M D at JP is is an example. But um I I went into a team, my first investment banking team, where the MD was a woman and the number two was a woman. Um, which was rare. Um but therefore I had female role models from that point of view very, very early on. Um I also come from a family where my mother had as powerful a career as my father. And therefore I and my father's attitude to my mother's career and indeed to mine, um, in a slightly different way, was um, I didn't have to give up my career when we had children, so why should you? So I've grown up in a household where that expectation of creating the structures where people can be what they want to be was the case. And, And so I've therefore not thought of it as needing necessarily a female role model or a gay role model. I haven't necessarily had an obvious gay woman in front of me that I could look to. But I have been able to say, okay, well, I've got my mother over there who was fearless and taking on the world. My first MDs in investment banking were women and they're really, really good at what they do. But I also get to work with all these brilliant male colleagues over here and I'm a bit like them, a bit like them, a bit like them, a bit like them. I think the most straight white men, when they come into organizations, they don't pick one role model. They look at all the examples ahead of them and they go, well, I'll be a bit like that, I'm a bit like that, a bit like that, I take a bit of that, and take a bit of that. I think the challenge for women in organisations is very often that who do you look at? And there's one woman. And if they look like they have a structure of their life that is very different from yours, then how do you even start thinking about it? But I think it, the emphasis on, on both sides it's for people who have the potential to be role models to be open about their stories so that people can actually find something that resonates with them. And that means you have to be much more open and prepared to tell stories and tell your life story in a way that is not necessarily comfortable but is really, really important, I think, for mental sharing. Um, and also to support people to look for role modeling wherever they find it, not just in one individual person say, that's the, that's the proof in the world. Um And I think that works. But I, I can't say I necessarily had an explicitly gay role model until...
0: Much later on my career. Well, I think it's worth mentioning at that point that you, you mentioned your mother, I'm glad you did. Um, your mother's Lady Hale, the first female president of the Supreme Court, who incidentally overturned the prorogation of Parliament a couple of years ago, um, which is a nice segue into kind of female leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, I wanted to touch on a, uh, a report, um, which is mentioned a report that came out a few months ago saying that um, female representation on the boards of Britain's top 100 companies stood at 39.1%. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what's the importance of diversity on boards?
1: Well, it slightly like, goes back to the things I've been saying. Um, I, I say repeatedly, and, and this isn't a comment that Einstein made because I did go and look it up. Um, but it's that adage that the, the, the greatest sign of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So I, I'm going to say something provocative, but I've, I've said it a lot, so I don't think I, nobody's kind of thrown things at me yet. But there is no empirical evidence that men dominating the upper echelons of the corporate world in this country produces the best outcomes. It's not a feminist comment, it's not even a diversity and inclusion comment, in it's a research methods comment. By definition, we 've never had a control group to prove it, and yet for some bizarre reason, which is to do with human nature, we demand far more empirical evidence to change the status quo than we do to justify the status quo. And so my basic attitude is we make the best decisions as organizations when we have the broadest perspective, we bring the broadest range of, of angles and perspectives and thought and ways of thinking into the room, and we give it an opportunity to be air. And then you create the team commitment to back it and to execute against it. Um, and actually, the idea that a sole group of men who, possibly historically in this country, have come from the same kind of universities and the same kind of backgrounds will have that diversity of perspective and opinion that actually, if we simply enabled our boards to represent societies in the societies in which these corporations operate, um, which would be better. Than that diversity perspective. Um, I'm not certain there's any evidence for it. Um, I think the key issue though is diversity on its own without inclusion is not good enough. There's an awful lot of evidence that says if you just bring one woman onto a board, the board operates the way it always has done and makes the women's position very uncomfortable. When you get to a critical mass of about three women on a the board, the dynamic um And to me, there is something joyous about that moment when you can see a team coming together of diverse people to challenge and to create an outcome that we wouldn't have got to otherwise and that moves the Dow. Um and that to me is is the thing that that diversity produces. Um and I think but the other issue is we can't just stop at gender. We can't just stop at ethnicity. Um and we've only really started moving the DAO on gender. We haven't actually gone as far in ethnicity.
0: And that's perhaps a nice point to ask you, where does the finance sector need to go further on diversity, equity and inclusion?
1: As I said, I don't think intent is the issue in large measure. I may be being naive and there will be quite a lot of people who say anything. It's actually the processes that produce the outcome that is intended. So I think fundamentally, I mean, if you think about meritocracies, I'll be provocative, but meritocracies are very often designed to reward the traits and characteristics of those who are already at the top. The consequence of that is we're then surprised that it produces people rising to the top in meritocracies who look exactly like the people who are already at the top. Um, and the problem with that is that kind of meritocracy not only produces that outcome, but it makes us feel better about ourselves while we're doing it. That's pernicious in many regards, actually. And so thinking about what we reward, what we value, what behaviours, really disaggregating that, and then making sure, particularly in a post-COVID world, we're creating an environment where everybody has an equal opportunity to thrive, and where structures of the day, expectations of the working day, actually work for the broadest range of people, is going to be critical. And I think we have traditionally structured working structures in this country that works very well for people who have families if they have a great deal of support around them. It works far less well for women who are having those children or for women who are disproportionately bearing the burden of the child. If COVID has meant actually that that distribution of labour in the household is actually more equal than it was before, then let's try and capture that and hold on to it. But expectations of the way we work in the workplace need to adjust to accommodate that.
0: Thank you. And I wanted to finish by asking you uh, what advice you have for the next generation of leaders. Be
1: yourself. Um, My partner would probably say that I am exactly the same person at home as I am in the office. Um, My colleagues can commiserate with my partner accordingly. But actually, I am exactly the same person at home as I am in the office. And that gives me the freedom to be me. I hope it means that I can, when I say I stand for something and I care about something, I can project that to my colleagues so that they genuinely have the confidence that that's how I feel. And leadership is not about, often leadership is not about what you do, it's about what people say you do. And you have to recognise that you're being observed and watched in many more ways than you realise. and. The greatest way of managing that challenge and responsibility is to be authentic. It is to be the person you are and not try to be something that you're not. Um, And the more I've realized that actually that's who I can be as a leader, the more relaxed as a leader I've become. And I think actually the more successful as a leader I've become. So that really matters to me.
0: Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and uh, taking time out of your busy diary to uh, have this conversation. I think we touched on some really interesting subjects, uh, learning about your career, the mentors you've had. Um, it was interesting to hear about diversity within organizations and what you do here at the LSE to foster that culture and also to discuss what pride it means to you. So wishing you a very happy prize and thank you again.
1: And you too. Thank you very much indeed.
0: My thanks to Julia for chatting to me today and thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts.